Genesis chapter 41, and we'll read from verses 1 to 8. And it came to pass at the end of two full years that Joseph dreamed, that Pharaoh dreamed, sorry. And behold, he stood by the river. And behold, there came up out of the river seven well-favoured kind and fat-fleshed, and they fed in a meadow. And behold, seven other kind came up after them out of the river, ill-favoured and lean-fleshed, and stood by the other kind upon the brink of the river. And the ill-favoured and lean-fleshed kind did eat up the seven well-favoured and fat kind. So Pharaoh awoke, and he slept, and dreamed the second time. And behold, seven ears of corn came up upon one stalk, rank and good. And behold, seven thin ears, and blasted with the east wind, sprung up after them. And the seven thin ears devoured the seven rank and full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men thereof. And Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none that could interpret them unto Pharaoh. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your blessed word. We just thank you that we have it within our hands and we can trust it fully with our lives and with our eternity. We thank you that you have revealed yourself in this word and that every word within it is true. We thank you for its preservation and we thank you that we have it in our own language. So we ask for your blessing upon us today as we seek to learn and be fed through it. We ask that we might understand and not just understand, but to grow through it, that we might be more like your son in every possible way. Bless us now as we seek to learn more of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been in a position where you've been in a situation that is difficult for a long time and you've asked the question, where are you, God? Ever been in a position where you've been wronged or where just things aren't going right and you wonder how is it that God's allowing you to continue in this position when you've prayed to him, maybe when you felt you've done everything right, and he's still allowing you to go through this difficult time and you begin to despair and you might wonder, why isn't he listening to me? Where is he? Why doesn't he care about me? Or you may ask simply, where are you while I'm going through all of this? If you've read the Psalms, you may have heard similar comments made by King David and others who were wronged at that, at, uh, during their lives. And... Uh, some of the words of King David I find very interesting in Psalm 10, verse 1. It says, Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? So he went through times of trouble in his life, even when his own family was attacking him. People that were closest to him were, were doing terrible things to him and where he felt persecuted. We had done no wrong, but he was made to be a criminal. Uh, and he asked, Where are you, Lord? Why are you hiding yourself during these times? Turn to Psalm 88 with me for another uh, time when he poured out his heart to the Lord and wondered, where are you? Psalm 88, verse 14 to 18. It says, Dear Lord, why castest, castest thou off my soul? Why hidest thou thy face from me? I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer thy terrors, I am distracted. 
Thy fierce wrath goeth over me. Thy terrors have cut me off. They came round about me daily like water. They compassed me about together. Lover and friend hast thou put far from me and mine acquaintance into darkness. And so he has this, this thing where he feels surrounded and, and completely en enveloped by the troubles that he has and by people who want to do him harm. And he says, Lord, why are you hiding your face from me? Why you, would you, did you cast me away? But then there are times you see David and he, and he says, for example, in verse 42, verse 5, he says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. And so you have this thing where the person who's going through maybe a, a, a time of trouble in their life and they, they'll go through times maybe when they're feeling weaker or maybe when they're, they're going through maybe even times of depression when they say, why do I feel so alone? Why do I feel abandoned? But there are other times when you say, oh, I don't know, God's here with me. I, can, I, can, I know he's there and you can see him working around you. And all the saints in the, uh, in the Old Testament and the New went through similar things. They go through similar things like you do. You are not unique with the, and we are not unique with the, with the struggles that we go through in our own lives. And what we find in the, in the Bible are people struggling with this thing. And why am I sharing that with you? Because the very first verse of this chapter says that it had come to pass at the end of two full years. If you remember the last sermon I shared on this particular topic, Joseph had come in contact with a butler and a baker. And he shared with them the interpretation of the dreams they were having. And he asked the butler at that stage, if uh, you could please let Pharaoh know that I'm in this prison unjustly. It's, um, I shouldn't be here. Can you please... Can you please let him know? Because if there was anyone who could release him from that prison, it would have been Pharaoh. Instead, the butler forgot about Joseph. And Joseph has now been in prison for a further two years. And we don't know exactly how long he'd been in prison already. So Joseph was wrongfully imprisoned, wrongfully accused, if you remember, because of Potiphar's wife, who had made advances towards him. And then when he rejected her advances, she blamed him. And turned the whole thing on him. And so he ended up being arrested. But in, as always, his character shines through because, he, because of his faithfulness. Even in prison, he remained faithful. He remained um, uh, obedient. And we find that even in prison, uh, the, the head of the, the, the prison guard actually gave him responsibility well above everyone else's. Because he was proven to be trustworthy. And so, whether it's... David, who was struggling with uh, the, the, the things that he was going through, whether it's Joseph, who is now stuck. That's a long time, two years in prison, isn't it? Two years um, when you're, when you're in, completely innocent. And then you may have thought, Joseph probably thought to himself, when the butler and the, and the baker arrived, this is God, do, God's doing this, right? And so he probably pinned his hopes on the butler maybe sharing that with Pharaoh, but two years later, nothing had happened. And so I want to open up just with this thought that the answers that God gives to those sorts of questions, both to King David and, uh, and Joseph, are the same when it comes to you. 
Are you here, Lord? I'm always here. Do you really understand what I'm going through? Yes, I actually fully understand what you're going through. Do you really work on my behalf? Yes, I am always working on your behalf. Have you forgotten me? No, I'll never forget you. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we've put our entrusted our souls with. You see, what's, what's interesting about us is that we tend to be very forgetful people. Um, if you remember, if you were born again this morning, you put your soul, you gave your soul and trusted your soul, the most precious thing that you have, Jesus says, worth more than everything in the world, you gave that to God. And you said, I'm going to trust you with this, the most precious thing that I have. I want you to take care of it for eternity. And so we did that. But oftentimes, we, on our day-to-day life, we struggle to trust him with the simple things. Because when we go through difficult times, the flesh, our old nature, and the devil keep prodding us, saying, see, he doesn't care about you. He's not here. He's not listening to your prayers. It's all a complete waste of time. God, through his word, has told us and shown us over and over again he doesn't forget his people. And this story is about that. Once again, we see even though Joseph was in a difficult situation, God was working behind the scenes. And God gave someone who didn't even believe in him a dream. A dream that he didn't even understand himself. And so... God was working on Joseph's behalf, but God's timing is always perfect. We may want the answers a lot more quickly, but God's answers are always perfectly timed as well as the perfect answer. And so that's where our faith and our trust in him should be. And so Pharaoh has a dream, two dreams, in fact, and he is so troubled by these dreams that he calls all of his magicians and all of the wise men that he has, and he says, I need to know what these dreams mean. That was, that's how important it was to him. He knew there was something about these dreams that wasn't a normal dream. These were not normal dreams. And people have night, I know people have nightmares and people dream all the time, but this type of dream was, must have been so special and so uh, uh, important to him that he had to get opinion about it from the people that he trusted the most his magicians, and his wisest men in his kingdom. And so the first dream involved him seeing uh, some cows, well-fed cows coming up out of the Nile River because that that was their most important river. So he sees them coming up out of the river and they're well-fed. And then they just go and graze in the meadow and it looks, oh, lovely picture. You know what I mean? Everything looks really good. And then all of a sudden he looks again and these, these seven thin emaciated cows come out of, out of the river and then as he watches he sees the thin ones consume the fat ones and he wakes up and then he has another dream when he goes back to sleep and he has this he sees this uh this uh, uh, seven ears of corn come up from one stalk and they look plump and full and juicy and you know and have plenty of um you know have plenty of meat on them and then he sees another store coming up with seven which look completely dried up and look completely useless and the thin ones eat up the fat ones 
If you remember the series on Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had similar types of dreams. And the first thing he did when he had dreams he couldn't understand was he called his magicians and his wise men. And he says, come quick. I want you to tell me what's going on with these dreams. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, made it a bit more difficult for his guys because he said, I want you to tell me what dream I had because he couldn't even remember it. Instead, Pharaoh here remembers his dream and says, I want you to interpret what this dream is. But at the end, no one can explain to him what it actually meant or what they meant. No one knew what these dreams, but there was one person who was, while he was listening to all this going on in Pharaoh's court, thinks to himself, you know what? There was a guy a couple of years back when I was in prison. Maybe he can help. And it was the butler. The butler who had forgotten about, about Joseph, all of a sudden, Joseph came to his mind. So have a look at uh, verse 9. It says there, Then spake the chief butler unto Pharaoh, saying, I do remember my faults this day. Pharaoh was wroth with his... I remember that time. Pharaoh was wroth with his servants and put me inward in the captain of the guard's house, both me and the chief baker. And we dreamed a dream in one night, I and he. We dreamed each man according to the interpretation of his dream. And there, and there was there a young man, an Hebrew, servant to the captain of the guard, and we told him, and he interpreted to us our dreams. To each man according to his dream, he did interpret. And it came to pass as he interpreted to us, so it was. Me he restored unto mine office, and him he hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon, and he shaved himself, and changed his raiment, and came in unto Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I have dreamed a dream, and there is none that can interpret it, and I have heard say of thee that thou canst understand a dream to interpret it. So, finally the butler came through. Finally the butler remembered because the circumstance God had aligned and he brought this thing back to his memory. And he recounts to the to Pharaoh, I remember my time in prison. This guy that was in there was able to interpret both of our dreams. He said what was going to happen and it did to each one of us, both me and the baker. And so he said, why don't we call him and, and give him a go? And so immediately Pharaoh says, call him in. I want to know what's going on. So, but you'll notice something interesting here. They call in Joseph and it says, well, he, you know, it says he changed his clothes, but it says he had a shave as well. Now, had he let himself go in prison? Do you reckon he was like scruffy looking and had a beard that was unkempt? No, no, this, he was a servant to the, the captain of the guard. So he was still probably looking all right. But why did Joseph then shave? Why did he shave himself? Did he let himself go in prison? No, he, not necessarily. It was because Pharaoh himself was shaved. So were all of Pharaoh's priests. So were all of Pharaoh's servants. And what's interesting about, um, and if you've ever watched the Ten Commandments, you'll realize your Brynner was well shaved too. Except for that lock of hair that he had coming from the side, right? Now, that, that is actually historically quite correct. 
because they used to shave their heads and shave themselves fully. In fact, um, in ancient Egypt, adults commonly shaved off all their body hair, all of it. Okay, they were complete. They would shave themselves completely, face, head, the whole lot. It was common for them to do that. And when they sported a beard in Egypt, it wasn't the full-on beard. They would trim it down to something that came just maybe out of here. Have you noticed? Have you seen those those pictures or those mummies, or those well, mummies, or those statues they have of Pharaoh? They've always got a, a just a thing coming up here. They don't have normally a, a full-on beard. It was common for them to shave themselves completely and they may have had longer hair but they would generally shave themselves and archaeologists have found many razors that were made of pure gold in egypt right and so they would shave themselves with these golden razors and so it was common for them to do that so men in egypt would often wear their hair long or Young boys would often shave, they would shave the young boy's head and leave just a lock like we see with Yul Brynner in the Ten Commandments. Um, but it's speculated the reason they shaved their heads um, was because it was considered clean. And you didn't get lice when you didn't have long hair. And if you were a priest in Egypt, so if you were a priest to one of the various gods they had, you had to shave yourself. To be a priest, you had to shave yourself completely. So you had to shave not just your head and face, you had to shave your eyebrows and even your eyelashes. So they would shave themselves completely. So you'd, you'd look a little bit like an alien from outer space or something, I don't know. Anyway, so that was the job of the priest. You'd have to shave yourself completely. To be considered ritually who are, to be clean, you had to be completely hairless. And so it was common for them to do that. So anyone who came before Pharaoh had to come clean shaven. You couldn't come with a long beard uh, as he may have allowed himself to grow in prison, even though he may have kept it even uh, well trimmed. Um, it was a sign of respect and it was a sign of uh, being clean when you came before Pharaoh in that way. So why am I making a point of facial hair? Well, I've got a beard, if you've noticed. Okay, um, Some of us have beards. Some people, like Kevin, say it's biblical to have a beard. Um, I don't necessarily like whether it's biblical to have a beard or not. Um, I know that there are commands in the Bible that speak about not shaving. So if you go to Leviticus, turn back with me to Leviticus just for a moment. I want to share with you a couple of things and we're going to try and extract the meaning of it here. So if you turn to Leviticus chapter 19, you may have read these verses before and maybe they didn't make, make complete sense to you. But before we read this, I want to share something with you because these these verses that you're about to read occur and are written in the, in the Mosaic law, the Levitical laws, and were given around almost 400 years after Joseph had gone into Egypt. It's a long time. And if you know the story of Joseph, you'll know that a Jacob and the whole family ended up moving to Egypt and began living in Egypt during the time when this famine uh, was, was about. And so they ended up growing up 
Can you imagine 400 years? The whole of Australia is only about a couple hundred years old. So imagine how long you have to be influenced by another culture. Okay, so just imagine that just for a moment. So when it comes to God giving his people commands, in Leviticus 19.27, he says to the, to the everyday sort of man, you shall not round the corners of your heads, neither shall thou mar the corners of thy beard. Now, why is God saying that? Because oftentimes things are done in cultures as part of custom, but that have spiritual significance. Okay? Um, I know that yeah, coming from an Italian background, um, there's this thing called the evil eye. Ever, ever heard of that? Okay. And so, and the and Italians have this interesting, you know, sort of superstitious thing, even though they 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 say they believe in God, but there's a whole lot of superstition that that they've actually inherited or or developed over the years. And if someone if someone gives you a compliment, this is how suspecting they are or not trusting they are. If someone let's say you're walking down the street with your baby in a pram, and someone says, "Oh, look what a cute baby," they they think they may even be putting a curse on your baby. And so they'll give them the a sign, which I won't do up here. Some of you have seen it before. Um, they'll give them a sign to ward off that thing, saying that, or oh, there might be a curse behind that blessing. I don't want them cursing my child. So Italians have this superstitious thing, and the evil eye, or the or the eye in some people's houses, I think the Turks do it as well, and sometimes the Lebanese have a similar type of culture, where they have this thing and they put it up in the house and it's meant to be an eye that wards off evil. Right? Okay. So, so for some people, it may, that thing may be just a pretty thing. You know what I mean? It looks like a bit of a work of art, but there's a spiritual significance behind it. And so the same thing that comes with culture often comes with a spiritual significance that sometimes is lost and sometimes it's, it's maintained. And in this particular case, they had lived among the Egyptians for so long that they'd probably taken on themselves the same types of customs which had a meaning behind them. And so God says, I don't want you cutting your hair the same way the Egyptians cut their hair. In fact, if you go to uh, Leviticus 21, look at what, and this one might make even more sense to you, when it comes to his own priests, okay, Leviticus 21 verse 1, we'll just, just to clarify first that God is talking to his priests, okay, the new priesthood that he's establishing through Aaron, okay, it says there in Leviticus 19.27, oh sorry, 21 verse 1, And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto the priests, okay, the sons of Aaron, and say unto them, There shall none be uh, defiled for the dead among his people. So then he gives a number of other commands, and look at verse 5. This is his command to his priests. They shall not make baldness upon their head, neither shall they shave off the corner of their beards, nor make any cutting in their flesh. Now, why would God give those commands to his priests? Because that's what the Egyptian priests were doing. Okay? And they were spiritually significant, and God's people already knew that. But some had already taken and copied those things and thinking to themselves, well, if the priests of Egypt shaved their heads because they were considered ceremonially clean, God said, I don't want you doing that. I don't want you copying that. That didn't come from me. I want you to not shave the corners of your beards. And when you shave the corners of your beards, it's not like trimming the bottom. 
it was cutting it so you were shaping the beard, like we have goatees and things like that, right? Don't feel bad. In liberating them from Egypt, the Lord wanted them to break certain forms of attachment and identity which the Jews had taken on while they were under Egyptian rule. This certainly included his priests not looking like Egyptian priests. He didn't want them to look the same as them. And so God did not consider a beard to be a dirty thing or hair to be a dirty thing. So he didn't want them clean shaven as a sign of holiness. They may have thought that it was a holy thing to do, but God said, no, I don't want you to do that. And so the same reason God says to his priests, I don't want you cutting yourselves either, because they used to cut themselves thinking they could get their God's attention by that. So the more pain they inflicted on themselves, the more they thought God's going to listen to me. And God says, I don't want you cutting your flesh either. You don't have to cut yourself to, to be heard of me. I don't need that sort of stuff. And so the attachment that these traditions or customs had were spiritual in their significance. So what about us? Um, we weren't rescued from Egypt, were we? Well, no, we weren't. We weren't influenced necessarily by Egyptian culture, although um, a lot of Egyptian, Greek, Roman has been passed on to us. So a lot of the traditions that we hold are actually contained in those cultures. Um, we weren't rescued from Egypt, so what does the Lord want from us? What are we to do? How do we remove and detach ourselves from things that are spiritually significant but aren't right? So turn to Colossians chapter 3, and I'll just share with you a portion of the passage that Brother Rowan read for us this morning. And this is the form that God wants us to put on. Okay? This is the form. So Colossians 3.8 says, But now you also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, do also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Notice that last one. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all, do everything, everything we do in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because if you do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, you're not going to be doing anything that dishonors him. God may have not given us specific examples to follow about trimming beards and not looking like 
the Egyptian priests and the hierarchy there. But in all things, we are to represent Christ in this world. What would Christ want me to do? What would Jesus want me to be like? Would he want me to cut myself to get God's attention? The answer to that is no. He never taught that shaving yourself made you more holy. No, we are taught to be modest in our dress. Modest, not to cause offense or stumbling to other people. So the, the thought always is, don't cause offense to other people. Don't be a stumbling block to someone else who may be weak in a particular area. Be temperate in all things. Be modest. Be humble. Be kind. God is not so much concerned about your hairstyle or your clothes or facial hair in as much as he's concerned about why you have them. Why you're doing those things. And if you're doing those things with disregard to others, or maybe because you desire to fit into the world, to be accepted by the world, I want to look like them so they'll accept me. If you're doing it for that reason, but dishonoring God at the same time, then the answer to that should be you shouldn't do it at all. Where is the desires that you have? Where are they coming from? What's motivating you and me to do the things we do? Am I so concerned about fitting in with this world that I'm willing to compromise the way I speak, the way I act, the way I dress, the way I look? rather than trying to please my Father in heaven. People see, people may look at the exterior and not know the heart, right? But oftentimes people look at the exterior and make an immediate judgment about the person based on how they look and how they're talking. And But people ultimately are looking for patterns in people's lives. You look for patterns. Why, how does that person normally look how does that person normally speak? What do they normally say? What's their demeanor towards other people? Do they really believe what they say they, they, they believe? Are their actions actually lining up with their speech? People are looking for patterns. The question is, what patterns do they see? What patterns are they seeing in us? And that's a question we need to ask ourselves. It's not so much the pattern of do I shave my head? Okay, to make myself holy as the Egyptian priest. But the question is, what patterns are they seeing us every day in our workplaces, in our families, among friends, when we go out into the world and we mingle with everyone else? And so I like the way the Apostle Paul puts this challenge to younger men. He says to them in Titus chapter 2, verse 7, in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works and good works are not the good works judged by this world they're god's works they're the works that god says are good so the question i'd like to leave us is in this particular section is what pattern do people see in your life what do they see when they look at you when they hear you speak do they see someone who is following after christ who seeks to honor him in all things or are they seeing something else well, let's continue the butler finally came through. Even though he had failed 
for two years to share with Pharaoh what Joseph had done to help him. And in Genesis 41, 16, if you go back there, it says, And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. So immediately, Joseph once again says, This is not something special about me. He points at God, at God being the one who can give the answer to these things. He gives God the glory and the recognition that he deserves because it is God who gave the dream to Pharaoh. It's God who knows the interpretation. And Joseph readily admits and understands that he is simply the conduit of God's knowledge. That's all he is. And that's all we are. And it's the same with his word. When we are you reading God's word this morning, it's he who gave us the word. And it's he who helps us to understand that world and gives the meaning of it. I may preach the word of God to you in the mornings, but it's not me. Okay. In the end, it's him who gives the word. It's him who gives the interpretation of the word. And it's him who gives perfect meaning. We do it imperfectly. I do it imperfectly. What he does is always perfect. My ability to be able to to share the word of God with you only lies in as much as I'm listening to what he's saying. If I fail to listen to him, then I'll fail to share God's word with you probably. But it's nothing in me. And Joseph said, this is nothing in him. So in all of us, it's how well we listen to God that will determine what we do with his word and how we understand it for our lives. And let's continue then. Pharaoh wastes no time in sharing his dream with Joseph. It says in verse 17, And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, In my dream, behold, I stood upon the bank of the river. Behold, there came up out of the river seven kind, fat-fleshed and well-favoured, and they fed in the meadow. And behold, seven other kind came up after them, poor and, and very ill-favoured and lean-fleshed, such as I'd never saw in all the land of Egypt for badness. And the lean and the ill-favoured kind did eat up the first seven fat kind. And when they'd eaten them up, it could not be known that they had eaten them. But they were still ill-favoured, as at the beginning, so I awoke. And I saw in my dream, and behold, seven ears came up in one stalk, full and good. And behold, seven ears withered and thin and blasted with the east wind, sprung up after them. And the thin ears devoured the seven good ears, and I told this unto the magicians, but there was none that could declare it to me. So Pharaoh adds a little bit extra that we didn't hear the first time round. He says that even after the lean ones ate the fat ones, what does he say? They were still the same. They didn't get fat themselves. They weren't, they weren't filled. He said they looked exactly the same as what they did before. So let's see what the interpretation is. So in verse 25, And Joseph said unto Pharaoh, The dream of Pharaoh is one, not two, it's one message God's giving you. God has showed Pharaoh what he is about to do. And that is so significant here. God's showing Pharaoh, he's showing you what he's going to do for the next 14 years. So Joseph declared not only God is the one who revealed the truth about this, this, this um, uh, dream, Joseph says it's God who is determining everything that's coming up in the next 14 years. Not only is he going to um, bring fullness, not, is, not only is he going to bring a bounty over the next seven years, 
he's going to, for the next seven, seven years after that, he's going to bring poverty and famine. You see, it's in his power. And you know what that meant to Pharaoh? It would have, the clock would have been ticking in his head, the, the, the gears would have been turning, and he automatically, by, by Joseph telling him that God is going to tell you, God is telling you what he's going to do to the whole land of Egypt, what that meant is that there's no other God that you're serving at the moment that has any power to stop him. It, it meant that the sun god Ra that they worshipped was useless to help. It meant that Horus, the god of the sky, was impotent against him. It meant Happy, the god of the Nile, was useless. Tefanet, the god of rain, useless. Shu, the god of the air, useless. Doesn't matter what any of your gods want to do, whatever you pray to them, you know what? This god, the one I'm telling you, is going to do what he wants to do for the next 14 years, and you won't have anything you can do to stop him. He is impossible to resist. You see, the God we serve, the one we've put our faith in, is utterly powerful. And in fact, the Bible calls him a frightening being. Absolutely awesome and horrifying, if you were to see him. He is by reason and by his own declaration and demonstration unlimited in his power. He is uncontrollable by anyone else. He is impossible to resist. And that's why Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 21 says, when God speaks to his people and they come against people with other gods, he says, thou shalt not be affrighted at them. For the Lord thy God is among you, a mighty God and terrible, he says. Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and the Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward. The constant message we have from the Bible, from God's own word, is that he is the one and the only, all the other gods, a figment of people's imaginations or their devils playing around pretending to be gods. None of them has any power over him. He does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, and no one can resist him. So bow the knee to him because you can go praying to all your other gods, but they're going to be utterly useless at the end of the day. And we as believers should never fear any other God. There is no spirit, no devil. There is no other being that people have imagined in their minds that can come against us and have any success. God says to his people, don't be frightened of them because I'm with you and there is no other God that can resist me. And we should never fear any other God. There is no spirit, no God, nothing that we should fear. They're all powerless against the one true God who gives the interpretation of his word. And look at verse 26. Now he gives the interpretation. The seven good kine, the word for kine is cattle or cow, okay? The seven good kine are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dream is one. And the seven thin and ill-favoured kine that came up after the seven, them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blasted with the east wind shall be seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken unto Pharaoh, 
what God is about to do, he showeth unto Pharaoh. Behold, there come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, and there shall arise after them seven years of famine, and all the plenty shall be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine shall consume the land, and the plenty shall not be known in the land by reason of that famine following, for it shall be very grievous. And for that the dream was doubled unto Pharaoh twice. It is because the thing is established by God, and God will surely bring it to pass. So God had just declared through dreams that he'd given to Pharaoh that he was the one and the only God who had power over the world's greatest kingdom, and there was no God that they were going to pray to that was going to stop what was about to happen. He had the power to bless them. He had the power to destroy them. But by grace, he told them what was coming up. Genesis 41.28, an interesting verse, it says, This is the thing which I have spoken unto Pharaoh, which God is about to do, he showeth unto Pharaoh. So for seven years, he would give them grace. He would give them a bountiful harvest, a plentiful harvest, more than they were used to getting, to enjoy the fruits of their labor in abundance. But for the following seven years, he would bring a famine upon the land that was so bad that they'd forget all the good years they'd had before. Why would the Lord share such information with a people that didn't even believe in him? Why? Why would God share that information with Pharaoh who didn't believe in, in God? He believed in his own gods. He did it for his glory. And when God tells you beforehand what he's about to do, and he does it, regardless of what you believe, he's glorified in that. Because it was inevitable that during those seven years that all of Egypt's priests and all of Egypt's believers in various gods that they followed would inevitably pray to their gods to save them from the seven years that were coming. They would plead for them, to them. They would, they would plead for intercession to overturn what had been declared. But in the end of the first seven years, they would begin to see that all their prayers for seven years were a waste of time. Then there would have been those who simply thought that this was all a fluke. There would have been those who said, oh, this is just a trick by the Hebrew to try to, to try to weasel his way into power and to be in Pharaoh's good books. So they chose or they would choose not to believe that there'd be seven years of bountiful harvest and then there'd be seven years of bad. But when the seven years were up and they chose not to believe and the drought started coming and the famine started among them, they would then have to reassess what they actually believed, wouldn't they? Then there were those who would trust the words that had been spoken to them, who took this in, who would respond to that, that message that changed their lives. They believed the message and they would change 
their direction because of what they believe. They would follow the instructions given and they would obey the voice of God and believe in him. When you think of it, that's the state of the world today. You see, God gave Joseph a message to give to Pharaoh. Pharaoh had already in his mind, planted there by God, an understanding of what was to come. But every person in this world, the Bible says, has a knowledge of God built within him already. God has built in that knowledge. God, the Bible says that even the heavens declare his handiwork. Everything they, they see around them points to a, an awesome creator. And God has given them not only that, this, this uh, general revelation that we have in all of creation, but within them there's this moral compass that isn't explained by evolution. Within them there's a, an understanding that there's this thing called justice and to do what's right and what's wrong, to understand those things. And so God builds into people, he plants already, he's planted within people this understanding that they try to, to push away. And not only that, God has given them his word, a special revelation where God has revealed himself and shown himself in operation throughout all the history of man. And within that word, he has said that mankind has a significant disease that he can't heal himself from. And this disease is called sin, but God has said, I've got the solution for that. I'm going to send my own son to save you from this. And he's going to be born in a place called Bethlehem. He will be my only begotten son. He is my only begotten son, and he will die for the sins of the world. And you know what? I'm going to tell it beforehand. He is going to rise again from that grave, defeating death for all mankind. Any different to what Pharaoh and the people of Egypt received? No, they got, they got the message. The question is how they responded to the message. So in our world, there are those who listen to the message that God has given in his word. And they say, I can't believe that. That's some sort of tomfoolery. That's ridiculous stuff. They're trying to pull the wool over our eyes, aren't they? They want to try and control us somehow using their religion. You've heard all the excuses before. And so they'll go and they'll ignore it. And at the end of the bounty, at the end of their life, that God has blessed them with, they'll find a famine. Then there are those who say, no, no, I'm going to keep on believing what I believe. I'm going to pray to other gods because they'll save me from this God over here. And they'll put their trust in everything else. They'll continue to put their faith in the gods of this world, whether it's themselves, whether it's their money, their society, their culture, their government, their philosophy, science, technology, whatever people put their trust in to save them. Um, they'll put all their trust in that, hoping that that will save them and that this can't be true. If I could ignore it, if I can block my ears and go la, 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 it may just go away. But at the end of the seven years, at the end of their life, they'll find out that all that was worth nothing. That what he said was actually true. Because for Pharaoh, for Egypt, it was seven years. For the average person, it may be 70 years that life that God gives you as a life and that he blesses you with. The Bible says he blesses the just and the unjust with rain and sun and all those things that none of us deserve. But at the end of the time, 
there is a time of famine. And if you're not prepared for that, which we'll find out next week, you're going to enter into that and die. So the message is simple. The message is to believe God, to take him at his word, because he never lies, he never deceives, and there is none, there is no God, no historical God, not the God of the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Persians, the Babylonians, whatever culture came up against this God, all failed. And no one believes them anymore. So put your faith in Christ. Put your faith in God and trust the message that he's given you. If you haven't already trusted the message, trusted the gospel, then now is there to do that because the time is limited. You may not even have seven years. You may have seven days. And the question is going to be, are you ready when the famine comes, when you step through the door of eternity, what you're going to find on the other side. If you're with Christ, if God is with you, he says, no need to fear. I'm here. I'm, I haven't forgotten about you. I'll never forget about you. I'm here and there's no one that can resist me. No devil and no demon, no nothing. If I, you step through those doors, I'm stepping through there with you. But if you don't have Christ today, you'll be stepping through those doors alone. And that, is the most fearful thing that anyone could step through. God bless you. Thank you. Brother Gomer, would you lead us in a final?